Welcome in, ladies and gentlemen. I am Patrick Jones, and you're listening to Patrick Jones Baseball. And on this episode, we have the head coach at Nova Southeastern University, Greg Brown. Greg was the 2016 ABCA Division II National Coach of the Year. He was actually a former Major League Baseball scout, and he actually signed um, J.D. Martinez and Kiki Kiki Hernandez, can't even say his name. Um, In this episode, he kind of goes over his coaching philosophy, um, how he develops young players on and off the field, and kind of gets into what it's like to be a Division II head coach. A little bit different from Division One, where you can kind of go out and, and recruit certain players, but there's you know, scholarship limits and things like that that he goes over in this episode. This episode is brought to you by Blast Motion. Blast Motion is the best bat sensor on the market. Um, one of the things that I really like about using Blast Motion is I can implement new drills with my players and immediately see instant feedback on how it did or didn't help them. Um, it tracks you know, your bat speed, how long you're on playing with the pitch for, whether you're swinging up or down. Very easy to use and set up. Um, if you're interested, head on over to BlastMotion.com and type in PJB25 in the coupon code area. And you will receive $25 off. Ladies and gentlemen, now we have Greg Brown. We now have on Greg Brown. He is the head baseball coach at Nova Southeastern University and was the 2016 ABCA Division II National Coach of the Year. Greg, really appreciate you taking the time to come on today. Uh, Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. You've got a pretty cool uh, background. Um, I was kind of reading up on you a little bit, and you were actually, before you were a head college coach, you were an MLB scout, and you signed J.D. Martinez, Martinez and Kiki Hernandez. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Yep. So when you were scouting those guys, did you ever dream that they would you know, become the players that they are today, especially J.D.? Well, I think that uh, J.D. has by far um, exceeded expectations. Uh, to, to see a player go through the evolution that he has um, is something that I don't think people can predict. But I did believe that they were both big leaguers. Um, I was really high on uh, J.D. J.D. was a Division II college player actually at Nova Southeastern University. And he had some great elements to being a hitter. The problem with him was visually he, he was a little bit flawed from a cosmetic standpoint of the way his swing worked. Um, and yet it was undeniable about his production. And so he was a tough scout, I think, especially for cross checkers when they would come in and see it, it didn't look like it didn't move the same way that others moved. And, um, you know, fortunately I worked for uh, a fantastic scouting director and Bobby Heck and, he uh, took a chance on a first-year scout who was really, really uh, touting the flag of JD, which was um, something that something that I'm very proud of. I mean, I I, I truly believe that had he been at um, a different institution, um, he would have been viewed differently. Uh, you know, as far as um, you know, if he was at the University of Miami in our backyard, I think that you know he probably goes in top three rounds. I think that because of being a Division two athlete at that time at a place that never had a history of signing a big leaguer now we have four guys in the big leagues on current rosters uh, so i mean i think that there was um, a little bit of an uphill climb for him but to see him go out and produce i mean he produced he hit something over a 340 clip in his minor league career um right and got to the big leagues within about two and a half years and so i think that i mean he was in the big leagues in 2011 after signing in 2009 so as a 20th round pick, that's a pretty good job. And then Kike was a different type of scout, you know, a 17 year old kid from Puerto Rico who just Kike had um, just the the baseball player. He had that he had that it factor, and um, you know, I really saw him at, at, had having the ability to play shortstop. Unfortunately, player development didn't see him the exact same way, and so they had moved him to second base immediately. Um, three years in, he was playing outfield. And, uh, you know, he didn't get his first time really at shortstop until he was in AAA. And then I think his second big league start was at shortstop for the Houston Astros. So it's just a it, it's player development and and the tools like you have to have a, like the marriage of the things like to go right in a player. Right. So like we saw the tools in both players, but I think um, having them go out 
having their careers play out the way they have, we were probably in a really good situation for both of them because the Houston Astros were, um, we weren't winning at the major league level at that time. And so uh, it kind of paved the way. JD got called up when the Hunter Pence trade uh, to Philadelphia took place in 2011. And I think, uh, you know, timing is everything. And JD, um, although his, uh, although his career has been really, um, chronicled now at this point about how he has become one of the most dominant hitters. Uh, he's the most dominant hitter in the last two years. Um, but, uh, you know, over the last four years, really how his career trajectory had changed, uh, in the transforming of his swing. I, I just think that's something that you can't predict. I think it's something that, um, was intrinsic in that he had ability to hit, he had a passion and he had the ability to, um, really, really good, body awareness in order to uh, be able to make some critical changes uh, and really be paving the way for what you're seeing now in major league baseball as, as guys understand putting the ball up in the air uh, and the value of it. And JD's probably going to go down in history as, as one of these uh, Mount Rushmore's of putting the ball in the air guys. So no, absolutely. And I'm glad I'm, I'm glad you kind of brought that up. I was just actually going to say, you know, he kind of is like the hitting Twitter guy, what everyone refers to. Um, do you do you still talk to him about hitting? Oh, yeah. J- JD and I, it's it's a great history that we have. And um, I still get to work with him every single season. Every single season since he signed, um, he and I hit together. <clears throat> and I think that JD, JD is a um, – he's kind of a hitting nomad in a lot of ways. Like he, he really has certain people that he trusts and he goes to them. And so there's about three of us that he really collaborates with one being, uh, Rem, uh, being Robert out there, um, in California, Vince, I, who is a hitting genius. And, um, he hits with me and then he hits with another guy down here in South Florida as well. And I, th- I think for JD, everybody facilitates a little bit different for him. Me, I, I I was one of those early adopters to circular hand path and you know trying to trying to create swings that were creating loft and JD's was swing was the exact opposite of that. It was very linear and it was in and out of the zone. And so early in his career, I was talking to him about making those changes. However, when I would talk, um, the way the the language that I was using, I think really scared him because. Here's a guy having a lot of success, and to him, success had to do with batting average. It had to do with contact. It didn't have to do with power, and he hit his way to the big leagues without a lot of power numbers. And I think that his perception changed in his career when when he started to struggle and the Major League Baseball started to figure him out. <clears throat> and you look back at, at some of those low points that took place in his career, um, they were critical for him to be where he is now. Uh, he, he tapped into um, a couple of his teammates, and uh, it, Jason Castro is the guy that he saw transform. And then he started noticing changes in Ryan Braun, and what he did was he went out and found out who they had gone to to change their swing. And um, it was Craig Wellenbrock out in Southern California, and J.D. went and spent some time with them and, and got some great some great uh, instruction that, that he was ready to listen to and then was able to apply it, which has been amazing. And a real cool story that took place was when he, when he flew back from Southern California, he came straight to my office. I was already a head coach at Nova Southeastern at that time. And he's like, Hey man, I need about two hours of your time. And when we started talking hidden, he told me, he said, Brownie, you know, you, you were right, but let me tell you why you were wrong. And what he taught me was, was it didn't matter that I had the right information. What mattered is how I was able to bring it forth to him so that he can comprehend it and apply it. And so he has a lot of aptitude, but it was just, he would hear circle or big or length. And that would scare him because his entire career, he had been taught short to it, you know, lines like that's the way it was opposites. We were speaking in opposites. But once he once he helped me unlock some of the um, language barrier that was taking place, I think I've become a better translator of the swing, and I think it's benefited everybody that's been around me, which is players and coaches alike. Uh, you know, I get to work with a lot of professionals in the off seasons in uh, preparation for them going to swing training, uh, but none better than JD, just from the simple fact of 
I constantly, um, although at one point in time, you know, I think I understood the swing. I'm constantly learning from him. I mean, he has become honest, a true, a true master of the craft of the swing and his, his, his ability and his effect on everybody that's around him because he's so passionate about it. And he loves to talk it. And, and the great thing is, is that everybody wants to know what the secret sauce is, but the secret sauce truly is, is that that guy grinds on his swing every single day. And even when he's not hitting, he's constantly hitting. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I also was going to bring up is, you know, he's a grinder. And um, since you're a head baseball coach, do does your players see that as well as is that it's it it takes a lot, a lot of work. And, and well, I think that that's a huge benefit from having J.D. come to hit with me is, you know, two two to three days a week. He's hitting with me in the off season, and our guys are watching that relationship that he and I have and the ability to communicate and, and he, and because he's so passionate, he loves to communicate it to any, honestly, it, it could be a eight year old to, to another major league all-star. He would, he, he, he's happy to give information to. Um, and I think that what it does is it definitely, um, strengthens, uh, my position within our players eyes of, of communication and, and understanding is that, Hey, if Brown, if, JD's trusting Brownie, you know, maybe I have something to learn from him. I think that's definitely a benefit, but I think that um, more so, I think their ability to sit there and watch him work and see how he's grinding on things. And when I say grinding on it, I mean, it's the, it's the small, minute parts of the swing that he might be focused on right now. And um, as you, as you continue to do that, he just, he lays layers and layers and layers of hitting knowledge into into the whole fabric uh, of the way his body moves, and I, I think that a novice and a young, uh, an amateur hitter has to realize is that there is an evolution to still take place. You're not your best player yet, and and he is at age thirty still evolving, and I think that's why he's going to hit deep into his career, which which makes him from a contract standpoint very attractive where a lot of hitters as their as their physical diminishes they don't have the ability to transform themselves jd's transforming himself on a daily basis and so i think that's a huge benefit um for anybody to learn from it's hard that's the the biggest thing is is that you've had success one way you've gotten to you know professional baseball by doing it your way um to actually be open-minded and listen that there might be a better way to do it is something that I think challenges it challenges the whole construct of of um, your own identity as a player and this is also why I think that you're seeing a little bit of a little bit of resistance from player development side of it is because there's a lot of coaches that have had a lot of success within their professional careers and they've they've helped hitters get to the big leagues and achieve you know hall of fame type careers well, now all of a sudden they don't know anything about hitting because because there's a new language being spoken. No, I mean it's it's interesting because I don't think it has to be one way. I think there's value in 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 all the information, and and the true value comes in what the player can take from each coach that they come into contact and then to be able to apply to their own. Yeah, isn't it really just about what the player feels, not necessarily kind of like how you tell it to them? Yeah, I think that I think that you have to learn how they learn. And so some guys can do physical activity and their body adapts and, and that's the way they learn. Other guys need the visualization. Other guys need to constantly get the feedback. JD films every single swing he takes. Every single swing he takes, he's filming and he's dissecting. Every batting practice is on film. And so what you end up seeing is that people go, okay, well, he's a visual learner. But I also think JD's a JD's a feel guy, so I think he's a nice combination. But he, he his feel is only being supported by the visual, and so we think that we give information, and a player is able to retain it. They're able to, uh, ha- to show you the aptitude that exists uh, in only you know in high level learners. Well, not every not every player that you come into contact has that ability to just apply, and and aptitude is the most important piece to to being able to take the information be able to apply it in game situation and so i think one of the the struggles that we see especially because our sport has a lot of failure in it is that you tell a guy all right make this adjustment 
he goes out and he has a game and let's say he goes four for four or see, I helped you, you know, like, see, you know it. Well, yeah. there needs to probably be a reinforcement to it. Or you have the other case where you help your, you, you make progress with the player, but he goes over four and then you make progress with them again tomorrow. And he goes over four. Well, now he's over eight in his last eight. Is he going to stick with the process or is he going to backtrack and go back to what he knows? And so that's like where the feel piece becomes it, there becomes butting heads about it because like meaning in, within the player because the player's going all right i used to do this and i had success this is how i got here and then and then the other side of them's going well i feel this and this feels like it works but it's different it's just there's a struggle and i think that you, you really look at these overhauls that exist they, they 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 take place in the off season where you have months to lay it down and there's not results being like put on the back of their baseball cards i think it's a very important time for a player uh, to be able to grind on it so that when he gets into the season and there's the lulls that exist within, within performance that they're able to still have the confidence to stay with that process. How hard is it as a head baseball coach to watch so many different swings and give feedback on each one? That's a that's a great challenge. Um, you know, I think there's a big difference between being a hitting coach, a hitting instructor, and being a head coach that does hitting. Um, I, I've been fortunate enough to surround myself with other coaches. Uh, you know, my assistant coach, my recruiter, uh, Brian Peters, is he's ha- he's had 21 years of experience at the Division One level as a hitting coach before he came and joined me. And when he came to me. He's looking at he's looking at our style and our philosophy and, and trying to play catch up to what we're doing without overstepping his bounds. But uh, he'll tell you that at first he, he thought uh, he thought I was coming from you know a whole different sport. Like I wasn't even talking about the same thing that he had been coaching for 20 years. And that you know now when you look at the way we were able to adapt his philosophies and 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 his application to the stuff that we were doing in the swing. I think that there's been an unbelievable marriage there. And then we also have our volunteer coach, which is a guy named Ricky Santiago, who is a young up and coming. I think he's got excellent feel. I think feel as a coach is just as important as we're talking about feel for a player. And Ricky's got feel for players and what they're going through and the struggle and trying to get them through it. And I think that by having those guys learning what my overall vision for it is allows me to be more of a it allows me to be a little bit more macro and they can be in the micro and then when I needed when needed I can come in and interject maybe some new energy to the teaching process that um, I don't have the ability to do on a daily basis in in the batting cage one thing that I do control is that I throw batting practice I probably threw I probably threw 99% of the balls thrown in batting practice this year for our team. That's right. And yeah, and I, I but I love the view of being of helping a hitter from in front. That's something that I, I really do. Most of the time, you know, you're standing around the turtle, you get the sides, you get the back. Well, when you're throwing batting practice, you get to you get to see how their direction, how their moves are going towards the ball and when you're manipulating the baseball as to what type of results you're trying to get from them, you know, and, and then you hope that it translates into feel. So I think that there's, I think that there's a, a great challenge in being a head coach. I think um, surrounding yourself with people that can deliver the message is very important. Uh, I coached third base. I used to be in the, until I probably had um, enough confidence in, in the coaches around me. I was the coach coaching from the dugout so that I could communicate with the hitters. Now I, I can go to third base, and I believe that um, the type of communication that's taking place is is very strong. And I think that using Ricky and Brian Peters as as examples is they're strong in areas that I might be weak at, and I think that their ability to communicate to the player um, becomes it, it gives that whole learning like where where there's a culmination of you know, the mental, the physical, the um, approach based. And those are things that all hitters need. It, it, you can't just be a swing coach. You have to teach approach. You have to teach, you have to teach. And I teach approach. My, the way I teach approach though is different than what Brian Peters had done for 20 years. And so how do you, are there part, there are parts that I've taken from him that I'm going, man, that's awesome. And, and to be able to train the hitter on a daily basis, to be able to have, 
if it was a golf course to have multiple golf clubs to come out and be able to attack the course is the way we want our hitters to be fueled. And so um, we create drills every single day that are that are geared towards our different approaches as well as different type of flights of balls that they might see in different challenges um, and whether it's visual training or whether it's physical training. And then we create that package that like all our different arsenal that we have to use, we create that as to who we're playing the opponent. And then we try to put our hitters in the best position we can. During an actual game, are you actually coaching from a mechanic standpoint of view? Or are you just letting them go out there and just play? You know, very, very rare. Will I talk mechanics like with a hitter um, in, in the midst of a game? It, it probably depends on how, how I think that his learning style is. If it's a guy that really has to be confident in his mechanics in order to perform, well, that's a guy that we might talk mechanics. Um, I, it's more approach-based. I really I love our guys to go out and play because we put in so much work in the cages. We, you know, we, we have a philosophy of we rake here. And um, you know, I think that allowing them to go out and perform is something that is um, – it's it's we know it's hard to hit we know we don't need to add the mechanical thoughts we need to have approach-based thoughts i think in the midst of a game Um, because ultimately we're trying to win baseball games we're not trying to just collect hits and get individual awards we're trying to win championships and the guys there there's a buy-in of of nine hitters against one pitcher and that's something that uh when it happens the team takes off and that happened to us this year we were kind of middle of the pack offensively and we had 23 new players in our program this year. Uh, then all of a sudden everything started to click. They started to understand how we worked, how, how we operated as an offense. I think from a managerial standpoint, I think we put players in better positions to succeed uh, within their roles. And I think then all of a sudden the extra base hits start piling up and we're getting 10 to 15 hits a game and we're, we're striking out less and less. And, and that doesn't come from, in my opinion, like the the mechanical talks. I think that comes from the approach side. You've been, uh, I would say, dominating um, Division Two baseball for quite some time now. Would you ever consider um, leaving and going up to Division One? Well, you know, I mean, I think that's something that it's like you got to take it in stride. I've had, I've had, uh, I've been interviewed for different jobs over the course of the years, especially. Probably I was at the hottest after we won the national championship in 2016, um, but it, it's a situation where where I love where I'm at. Uh, I, I'm I'm from here. I was born and raised in South Florida. Um, the university that I get to coach at is one that can win, and so I think there's a lot of fulfillment. And the other thing is is that over the last eight years, we've really been building a brand and 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 a program. We've built a a uh, alumni base that that are proud of this program they come back um so i mean i think that there's so many pluses that you have to look at every opportunity that comes your way i think but i'm not seeking it so that's i think the best way i could describe it is is that if if somebody deems what i do as a value and, and i could be an asset to their um, athletic department or whether it's a professional organization i think that you have to look at every situation but I am not one of those active seekers of another job because I believe that, you know, you take away from what you're actually doing. So I try to be where my feet are and I try to um, make this program, you know, you, you, I think you said the word dominant, like as far as it, and I'm sitting there going, man, we're, our conference is so difficult every single year, a year in and year out. I, we've done a great job. We're the first team um, in Sunshine State Conference history other than uh, the two teams that have dominated our level over the course of the last 35, 40 years, which is Florida Southern University of Tampa. But we've gone to four straight regionals. We've gone to regionals six out of eight years since I've been there. Um, yeah, I think that there's a lot of success happening. I think that team opponents understand when they come play us, they're going to get a battle. Um, and I, I'm, I'm very proud of all those things. And, and so, you know, to go, I, I wouldn't say that, um, I, I believe in the build. The build is actually really, really fun for me, the engineering of that. And so that is something that entices me. But I think when you choose your next destination, you got to make sure it's something that is going to be an upgrade versus where you are. And I don't think just Division One alone is something that um, that has to entice me because I'm very fulfilled in the type of student athletes that I get to work with day in and day out. 
do you think that Division One, in, in a sense, is kind of overrated, or or is Division Two underrated in a sense? Because you guys obviously put out a lot of really good players. You know, you said you have four guys currently on rosters in the big leagues. Um, I played Division One, and we don't have one. So, um, do you think you guys are underrated? Well, I think that I think that we definitely have built a reputation, especially speaking at our institution. And I think that when you look in the southeast of Division Two baseball, I think that it's highly regarded as far as the quality of players. The probably biggest difference is depth. When you talk about um, you know a Division One program versus a Division Two program, we have less scholarships, um, and so you know. But I think that I think that the fact that you can build a program and build and build student athletes into um, professionals, they they our guys typically aren't coming in as highly regarded players uh, or highly touted. Um, but when it comes to developing them, I think that they actually become professionals and they're ready to succeed in professional baseball. So I think that there's something very fulfilling in that. And I think that we don't have necessarily the same pressures that exist um, that some Division One programs have where you can take talented players and just get rid of them. Well, you know, I believe in the whole the holistic approach to building the player, which is going to be we're going to work on them as a student. We're going to work on them as an athlete. We're going to work on them as a man and as a leader. I uh, do leadership development training um, with with our players, which I think then prepares them. So do I have – I think that one of the nice things as a Division II coach is that you don't have the same recruiting cycle that the Division Ones are in. And so, therefore, I have more time, I think, to really invest in the student-athlete. Um, but so so – so from a from a sliding standpoint, I wish we I wish the kids got more fanfare. Um, but I think that it all depends on where you are. If you're in a small pocket where you're the only game in town, I think that you get you know you can get the crowds and the kids get the fanfare um, that they deserve. I think when you're in metropolitan Fort Lauderdale, there's a lot of conflicting uh, you know or there's a lot of um, different events that that can probably take away from the fan base, um, but. I think that from a scouting community uh, down here in South Florida, people people are coming. We had assistant GMs in this year uh, to see our. We have a top five round draft pick catcher, um, who um, I think is I think is going to be a big leaguer. I think he's going to be one of those guys. I think we have a guy in the minor leagues right now who's going to end up being our next big leaguer, and then I think this is the one after that. And and so I mean I think that there's I think that there's an ebb and flow um, to to how people are viewed. And I think that if you label them just by the, the, the division that they are, he's a junior college coach or he's a division two coach or, you know, he's a, you know, a division two player. Well, I think that that's very limiting. And I think that we have to realize that there's talent everywhere. And um, the better we are at, at being probably open-minded as an industry, we can, we can see true value and maybe make better hires or better, (laughs) or better, uh, you know, draft picks. And, and that's something that is, is something that I think that you're going to fight that forever. I don't think that that's something that's going to change, especially as money gets pumped into the division one baseball, as we're seeing as new facilities are getting built. And there's, there's great growth to our game, which also probably creates more separation between, uh, or more of a gap and a divide between, um, what people think division one baseball is and what division two baseball is. And you get it all the time with recruits from the perspective of they want to go division one, right? Okay. No, that's cool, man. And then when they transfer back and then they come play for you and they realize, man, I, sh- I wish I had four years of this. That's something that um, is, I think very special um, to a division two program because you can, you can really see the appreciation from a player of how much they, they enjoyed playing there. They loved it. And then they become ambassadors to it. So I, I guess it's a really, really boots to the ground approach to growing it. And I think we've done a great job at, at building our brand. I think people know um, that if they send, you know, if I'm a high school coach and I send my player to go play for Nova Southeastern university, that they're going to be um, treated as, as I would want my kid treated. So that's something I'm proud of. How do you go about kind of like recruiting? Like, what is your philosophy? Are you going after junior college players, high school players? Um, what is kind of your, your guys' philosophy on recruiting? Our philosophy is mixed uh, between transfers and 
uh, high school players. And the reason is because our university is is really attractive to a student out of high school that we can get a higher caliber um, player than we ever had before. And so so that's something that I'm really I'm proud of is that our classes continue to be 50 50 high school to transfer um, the junior colleges. You know, it's very competitive because in the junior college market you're dealing with, especially in South, especially in Florida, is that these are the JUCOs that that are constantly being coveted by Division ones, Division twos. Like so, we're, you know, we're we're battling for guys, and so we probably land about half of our our transfers are going to be junior college guys, and then the other half are going to be transfers from other four year institutions uh, that, for various reasons, um, end up needing to leave where they're at. Uh, they get in contact with us with their releases and, and they come over and um, it ends up being a pretty good fit because, again, when when a student athlete comes down, like like they leave that, that dream institution that they went to and then they go to the next one and they realize there's, you know, the way they're being coached and the things that are going on within our program, um, I think that you get people that are very grateful to be there and it also helps your younger guys learn from from in a way like hey you guys got it really good here and you're fortunate you know and so it keeps them kind of buying in and building a program i think that if you if you don't have four-year guys at the lower levels then you're losing the ability to really build a culture i want four-year guys that build a culture our championship was won with with program guys you know and then you add you know the big junior college bat or you add a transfer bat and then that that fills a gap but i want the guys that want to be a part of the program and build the culture and that's something that you have to constantly address within within the um within the like the daily basis of of a year you know so for eight months of of this past season every single time we're on the field we're addressing culture um you know i'd say we address culture more than we do baseball because it's it's all part of it, and I think that when they embrace it, that that's when the sky's the limit. How do you kind of like find the players that you want to be a part of your university? I get this this question all the time with people going to showcases and this and that. Um, how do you how do you find uh, or recruit players? Find the players to recruit. Well, I think the first thing is you have to know what you want. Like, what's the type of player that I can coach? that performs, that can, that can come in and be able to handle, um, the day-to-day process of being a shark for us, you know, who, who's going to be able to be coached in the swing path that we teach or in the pitching philosophy that we pitch, you know, you don't want to force something to work. That's never going to work. We need guys that fit our system. So I think that first thing is, it's like, know thyself. I got to know what fits for me. The second thing is, is that going to, I, I really, I think that you build the network and then you trust the people that are that understand what your program is about because when they refer to you or when they refer a player to you you want to make sure that they understand what caliber um, of play is expected at your level. And so that's one of the hard things I think is cuz especially when you talk about relationships is I get calls from a lot of people but you can't take every player I can't take every single player on. I, I gotta, I gotta make sure that I am taking the right player because if you miss out, then you get, you get the wrong player. Well, then you also miss on the player that you could have had, and then you also are probably missing on a future player that that same person recommends to you because you go, well, we had a bad experience with this one. It didn't work out, and and I, I want, I want to make sure that we make better decisions. Nice part of our recruiting cycle is that our decisions can be delayed. We don't have to recruit kids as freshmen, sophomore, you know, we, we, we're recruiting juniors and seniors. And so I think that players are closer to what they're going to be when they play for you at that point in time. And therefore you can make better decisions. Um, and so I think also what helps is that if you have the, a long tenured coach, which I think now I'm in that stratosphere of going into my ninth year is that I'm a long tenured coach at a university, um, there also builds a reputation for the players and the players talk to players, you know, maybe they're younger brothers and, you know, so they're, they're, they're influencers in players wanting to play for you. And so 
we try to use that to our advantage by having, you know, showcase opportunities, those type of things where we get on the field with the kids and be able to tell you if they can, if they have the aptitude to learn what we're trying to teach. Um, I believe that we should be teaching at a calculus level, not at an algebraic level at this level. And so um, the, the student athlete has to be able to understand that calculus or have the ability to get to a calculus level. And, and that's something that um, we're constantly striving for. So I want to make better decisions. I want to I be on the field with them at some point in time, I, or at least when we get into the recruiting process of having them on campus, I want to be able to create the type of dialogue that, that gives me an indicator whether this person is going to be able to fulfill what, what their goals are. You know, are they aligned with what our goals are? And those are the questions that we have to ask. I think showcases are they're very, very um, difficult for 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 probably the players that we're looking for uh, to stand out. Um, and and that's something that it, it, tools are tools. I mean, there, there's some players that I, I've seen, you know, when when I was scouting and you got Manny Machado and Chris Sale and all these guys. That they can't miss big leaders, right? They can't miss big leaders. Well, then there's also the JD Martinez who goes in the 20th round. Well, why is why is um, wh- why are they slotted that way? Well, because they haven't gotten to that maturity yet. Well, maybe the players peaked earlier, and so those are things that you have to constantly ask yourself: Is there better baseball days ahead for this player, or is he maxed out right now? And so I think that's the challenges that we all face in the recruiting world. And so you go to a showcase, like when I was in high school, if I went to a showcase as a catcher, I would have been, I would have been overshadowed by probably 50% of the catchers that were there. Because when you evaluated me as a catcher, I was better at playing the game. And so, you know, if you saw me over a course of 10 games, you'd be like, gosh, this guy, every single day, he, he brings the same energy. He brings the same you know, ability to squat behind the dish and lead a pitching staff and, you know, all those things. But if you would just put me in a BP and a throw to second type uh, setting, I wouldn't be very successful or probably never even been able to play college baseball. I mean, I, I mean, or, or not where I wanted to play. So you ended up, how, you ended up playing, uh, making it to double A professional level with the Marlins. Um, yep. why is it so hard to be a catcher, um, in professional baseball? Well, I think that because we, it's hard to evaluate. I think professional baseball, um, one of the things that from a scouting perspective is, is how do you evaluate and quantify how good a catcher is? And I think that most of it from, from like any coach, if you ask any coach in the country, like what's your favorite catcher you've ever had, it's probably a guy, not, not the most talented guy, it was probably the guy with all the intrinsic tools to lead a pitching staff, receive, do the dirty things, block, all, all the things that you want to help you win. And so I think in professional baseball, a lot of times we're taking tools. And so we get guys with talent, but they don't necessarily have the passion to catch or they don't have the natural instincts that, that come into like the blocking. It's like, oh, he played shortstop in high school. He should be able to block. Well, it's a little different. You know, I mean, there's, there's, a bit, there's like a will thing. So I think that um, the reason it's so difficult is – that there's there's only one guy gets to play each night at each level, right? So you, in your whole organization, you have 18 catchers and six of them are playing each night. Where if you have multiple outfielders, they get to play more. And I think that the game is the greatest teacher we have. And so as a catcher, there's not a position that could develop more than the one of catcher because the volume of work is so much, you know, 110 pitches or 120 pitches you catch that night. Well, that's 120 reps. Well, how many, you know, how many balls are the shortstop going to get? How many balls are the center fielder going to get in the course of the game? And so you need the playing time, but the wear and tear takes on you. So I think there's a, I think there's a great challenge to um, being able to do it every single day as a catcher. And I think that's why we have to do a better job of identifying the people with the, the not only the physical skills, but the, the skills that, that are going to keep them at that position and let them last and, are they a good clubhouse guy? Are the the only way you do that is is you get to know the player. It, it, you watch them play. It's not going to be at a showcase. A guy, there's a lot of guys. You go down to Puerto Rico. I scouted Puerto Rico when um, in my scouting days. You go down to Puerto Rico. Every single catcher, it felt like on the island, in every single position player could be a catcher that could throw a one eight five. 
Like, it's crazy how quick they can get rid of the baseball. As an island, it's amazing. And so how do you distinguish which one's going to be able to play? And that's the hard part. And I think that that's where we we just have to dig deeper. And so as a player, you know, getting to double A, I wasn't very talented. And I think that I, I think that I rose up the rank, like I rose up the organizational chart value because pitchers really like throwing to me in 2004, my starting five rotation ended up pitching in the big leagues all within the next year. And which included a guy named Josh Johnson, who was, you know, top five pitchers in the game uh, at one point in time with before his, before his um, arm started to give out. And I think that you look at um, the reputation I build. And then I also, I also used to um, catch Dontrell Willis in the uh, off seasons. And so I built a reputation there. They bring me up to big league camp and I started working with him in front of the brass and Joe Girardi and all these guys are seeing me work with them. And, and all of a sudden they're like, man, you know, there's value in that. Forget the offensive value or lack thereof. Let's, let's see what we can do. Let's, let's put the tough assignment guy with Brownie and let's see if we can get something out of him. And so, you know, I think in a lot of ways, my, my pure satisfaction as a catcher came from helping other guys get to the big leagues. And I take a lot of pride in that. And I think that's also what probably led me to being a coach. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of all related in, in my trek. How do catchers call a good game? Um, man, that's a, that's a learned process. Um, I, I was calling games from the time I was, uh, um, probably 12 and I think, so I had a, I had a natural feel to it. I think that, um, now everybody's regurgitating, um, you know, they're, they're being told what to call. They call it how much buy-in, how much prep work is going in into, um, oppo- opponents is something that I think that really is lacking from a catcher's perspective. Um, so I think that they learn by calling the wrong pitches. <laughs> I think they learn by, by, um, being in the fire. Uh, we, we try to, we try to really enhance that development through our scouting reports. But at the end of the day, we have the information in front of us in the dugout. We call the game. Um, I, I do. I think that it's very important though, to have a dialogue with your catcher to get input as to what's going on in the batter, the batter's box, what you know, what's going on on the mound, and that way you can um, help make you know better decisions from the sideline when you're calling pitches. So I, I think at the end, how you how you develop a catcher to call a game is you have to really create dialogue with him and pitching staff and about approach and about you know why did we go with this pitch? What what were we thinking? You know what was what was intent. And so that way, when they do get put into professional baseball, now all of a sudden they're calling a game, um, and maybe they've never done it before on their own, that they at least have some things to draw on. And, and again, they're going to have a volume of work, so they, they have the ability to get better at it. Um, but it, it's something that is definitely lacking right now, and I think it's a great separator if somebody has it. So if you have the ability to call a game, do you have the ability to recall it and I think there's a positive effect you can have in an organization that way and, and then go apply it. And so um, it, it's something that is is a a quality of development that when you don't when you have a catcher who cannot call a game, it's it's something that is glaring and it stands out. I think when you have a catcher who can, who really can call a game, I think it goes unnoticed too often. And so there's there's got to be a happy medium and an appreciation to it. Um, in order to continue to develop it. And then you build your catching core. So we have four catchers within our program and you build a catching core that, that are having those. It's not only the guy that's playing, it's all of them having these conversations as to what we saw in the bullpen. And then, you know, what the application was in the game and using teaching moments and opportunities to get guys thinking the game. I think that we as players, I think we as coaches have created a, a lot of players who are regurgitating the game, as I said before. And you don't want that. I don't want robots. I want free thinkers. I want a free safety. I want a guy who can play the game in center field and have feel as to the, you know, where the pitch is going, what the swing type is, and where it's going to lead to. And, and that's something that, as a catcher, we need to be able to identify swing types. What are they doing on deck that's going to um, tell – like, what, do they have any tells as to what they want to do 
what their intent is when they get in the box, and then how do we play chess against that. And so uh, by creating an environment where there is free thinking within the game, I think you create players that can make better decisions and stand on their own when they get to professional baseball. Well, it definitely sounds like you're really, really good at developing catchers, being that also this year you have a top five-round pick who's, who is a catcher. Um, I'm kind of curious as to why did you stop being a scout? Well, I had the opportunity to be a head coach at age 30 at Nova, and Nova was a sleeping giant. Um, you know, I think that, again, the, the stability of, of being at home is a great thing. Um, you know, on the as a scout, even though I had a small area, I mean, you're still doing it probably about 80 to 120 nights a year on the road. Um, you know, my wife and I have had a young family at the time, and, and we still do. I mean, we have three kids and 10, 7, and 4. And so I think, it, you know, the college job gives you a little bit more stability. Um, also, I think one of the things that was missing for me in scouting that I, I could, I still, I never could fulfill was the wins and losses in the clubhouse. You know, I, I love the clubhouse. I love players. I love teammates as a player. Um, and so when you're scouting, I don't think you get the same exact feel. Your clubhouse sometimes becomes your opponents, which is, you know, the scouts that you're scouting against. And so that's a, it's just an interesting dynamic. And then, you know, you, you do all this work and you, you don't get a player that you really wanted. And even though, you, you know, maybe you put the organization in position to it, but for whatever reason, they went in a different direction. And then you, you basically just punting at that point in time, you know, like come the draft. And so there was a lot of things not in control as a head coach. I become, I can become the scouting director, the director of player development. I can become the GM. I can, you know, I mean, there's a lot of different hats that I get to wear um, in calling the shots. And then there's the wins and losses. And then the lastly, why I coach is because I love making an impact on a young man's life. Um, and I think that the biggest transformation piece to me has become when I became a transformational leader because I found my why. My why is I want to impact human beings. I've had um, amazing highs. Uh, you know, we won national championship, players drafted, players get into the big leagues, like great, amazing accomplishments. And I've also had lows where, you know, player, um, you know, player flunks out or a player, you know, for various reasons, you got to get rid of a player. And, and unfortunately, I've even had a player pass away in a car accident. And so you take all these different highs and lows. It's, it, you got to stay centered in this job. You got to create connection points with human beings. And you have to realize that wins and losses are, are how we're judged, but you really judge a program from the inside out. And um, I'm very proud as to the human beings that I get to work with every single day and the human beings that I get to go to work with every single day. And so once I figured all that stuff out, I mean, this, it's a dream job. Yeah, really sorry to hear about uh, about that player who passed away. When you when you just took the job at age thirty, um, how did you get your players to buy into what you wanted to do? You know that was that was a um, that was a tough year from the sense of we had never been to a regional uh, as an institution, and um, I, in a lot of ways, I felt like we're we had more to achieve, and so. The group that I inherited was an older group. It was, I think it was 16 seniors on that team. And those, those young men wanted to win, but I don't know if they were willing to go all in. And so that first year, I kind of probably more took them by the collar and said, and dragged them and said, this is where we're going. And, uh, and so um, Tough they love. bought in, I think they bought into me. But I think they were only halfway in in a lot of ways because they were like, oh, this is awesome, but I wish we had this earlier or this is awesome, but ah, screw it. Why would I change now? And so we had success on the field. Um, I think we finished second in the conference my first year and uh, we went to a regional. And, and I think that I think I'm very thankful for that team in so many ways because they paved the way for what has become you know, even winning the conference for the first time and winning the national championship, which took place in 2015 and 2016, was that you 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 have to lay you have somebody has to do it first. Right. And so that group really were pioneers. And um, and then the next year we followed up and, and we had a we had another strong year and got to the regional again. 
But it was at that point in time where I started going, you know what, I want to create a better element of player. Um, I want to create better relationships, all those things. And so I need to do a better job of acquiring the right kind of people that, that we want to lead and represent this university. And so that, that was a big transition. And so for two years, I think we were transitioning, um, out of that. And, um, and then in 2015 through 2018, we've been to the regionals every single year. And I think that, um, again, it was like that learning curve. And so the first year I think the first team took to me, I think I took to them. I just think that it wouldn't, the way it was is different than the way I would do it now. But I think probably my instincts were, this is what needed to be done. Like, let's get rid of the country club mentality and let's get to work. Let's grind. And, and so those guys, I've actually created some great relationships with um, some of those alumni that, that come from that group. Um, but I think that our bonds are stronger now with more players um, year in and year out because of the transformational type leadership that we're and the servitude that we're approached that we're having. I think all the core, I think the core of who I am um, was there in 2011. I just don't think that as a young head coach with, with really no experience, <laughs> like I had one year of junior college coaching prior to that. Um, I think that I, I made a lot of mistakes that I look back on and say, I could have been a lot better. I could have been a better leader, but I think it, I think that at the root of it, I had the right intent, but I don't think I went about everything the right way. And so um, you learn. And, and, and I think that um, I've, I've just I've tried to evolve and get better and, and try to work for my players as much as I can. Greg, I, I really appreciate you you coming on today and your your passion found for the game and just helping players out and and you know admitting your your mistakes and you know not just you know the positive but you know the negative as well. It, it's pretty pretty cool to see and I just um, I really appreciate it. I'm I'm glad you're you know you're in the coaching business and um, I really appreciate you coming on today. My pleasure, man. Thanks for having me and I, I appreciate that you you know, continue to push this mission forward of creating a better environment for all of baseball. So thank you. And I look forward to hearing uh, all that you do in the future.